Our Heavenly Father, we pray now that you will speak to us in your word and by your spirit. Speak to our minds and our hearts and our wills so that we may understand what you have to say and so that we may believe and so that we may live obedient and faithful lives until the Lord Jesus returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you believe that Jesus is coming again? I'm sure most of you do believe, but maybe you don't think about it a lot. Uh, Honestly, we get confused so often when we hear so many different theories and people's ideas and opinions about what's going to happen in the future. See, there are some people who love speculating about the end times, right, about the future. And they, you know who they are because they use words like rapture and millennium and Armageddon and, uh, uh, you know, antichrist. Okay, and they lo- love uh, you know speculating who this person or that person is the beast or the antichrist uh, or you know Jesus coming back in two thousand or two thousand twelve or whatever, right? So you know we, I mean, I, I came across a few websites this week as I was doing research for this sermon, and there are serious websites out there which say that Barack Obama is the antichrist or you know Ahmadinejad of Iran is the antichrist. So you know when we when we see all these kinds of things, you know we think. It's a bit loony, so we don't tend to teach a lot. We don't tend to think a lot about the future, right? About Jesus coming again. And yet, it is very, very important. Jesus spends one whole chapter in Mark to tell his disciples about the future. And in fact, this is the longest continuous speech by Jesus in the book of Mark. And it's also the most complete teaching about the future that Jesus gives. Now, Mark 13 is a difficult passage, but it's important for us, so let's... Um, Take a look at it now and pay careful attention to what Jesus has to say to us. Remember last week, we looked at chapter 11, and in chapter 11, Jesus declares judgment on Jerusalem because God has come to his temple and found it wanting and found it unacceptable. So now Jesus leaves the temple, it says, uh, for the last time, Jesus leaves the temple in verse 1. And God is abandoning his temple. The temple is doomed. Now, about this temple, let me, let me show you a slide. Okay, this one. This temple, uh, it's just a reconstruction by the way, but King Herod the Great started building this temple to, uh, 20 BC. And he wanted it to be very grand, very magnificent to show off his status. And he was so big you could fit 12 football fields in the, in the temple. And just the stones used to bu- build the retaining wall around it. Each stone was more than a million pounds. It was a huge, huge complex. And the temple was the pride and joy of every Jew. It was, it was hugely, hugely important to their national identity, their religious identity as a people. And so when Jesus walks out of this temple for the last time, the disciples are thinking of the words of Jesus that this temple is going to be destroyed. And they, they, they are, but they're, they're so impressed by this thing, they go, Jesus, in, in verse 1, maybe the next slide, look teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. But Jesus says in verse 2, you know what, not one stone is going to remain on the other. Every one of these stones will be thrown down. And that is truly a shocking piece of information for the disciples. And so they ask Jesus, okay, in verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now look carefully at what the disciples are asking here. Because 
Knowing what the disciples are asking will help us to understand Jesus' reply to them. Because everything that comes afterwards is Jesus' answer to their question. Now, the disciples are asking two things. First question, when? That is, what is the timing of these things? Now, first we need to ask ourselves, what do, what do they mean by these things? Okay. Obviously, Jesus has just been talking about the temple being destroyed. So, these things will include the temple's destruction, right? But, in Jesus' time, the Jews thought that the end of the age would come. When the Messiah comes, there will be suffering and tribulation. The temple will get destroyed. And then, Israel will be restored and the Messiah will rule forever in the new age. So, for them, it was all one event. For them, it was one package. So, when the disciples think like that, they're going, these things includes the temple's destruction, but also the coming of the Messiah and the end of the age for them. So I'll show you uh, on the next slide. This is, I'm really bad with PowerPoint, but uh, this is the kind of thing they have. Present age, the age to come, and then all these things will happen all at once for, for the Jews. Okay? Alright, now, the other, the other thing that helps us to understand how... Uh, the disciples connected everything together, is when we look at Matthew's version of the question that the disciples asked. So on the next slide, Matthew records the same conversation by Jesus. And in Mark, it says, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? But in Matthew, it says, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, Matthew understands the disciples' question. They are not just asking about the temple's destruction, but also about the end of the age. And then the second question that the disciples ask, the first one was, when? The second one is, what will be the sign? They're asking Jesus for a sign that will show them uh, you know, when these things are going to happen. Are there any clues that you can give us to tell us that these things are near and you know, when the temple will be destroyed? And the first part of Jesus' answer is verses 5 to 13. Okay, uh, uh, next slide. Now listen to what Jesus says at the end of verse 7. He says, Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And at the end of verse 8, Jesus says, These are the beginning of birth pains. Now that helps us to understand this section. Now uh, at one time I was a houseman in KK Hospital and working in the labor ward. And from my experience, from what I can see, the beginning of labor pains is very, very different to the finishing of labor right, and the birth of the baby. Okay? The beginning of birth pains can be many, many hours from the, the baby coming out. Right? And I'm sure some of you may have experienced that. So, what Jesus is trying to say here is that these signs that I'm going to give to you now, they are not necessarily signs that you can say, when you see these things happen, immediately the end is here. No, they are just the beginning of birth pains and the end is yet to come. Okay? He says, I will give you signs, but these signs do not tell you exactly the timing of the end. They are just distant signs of the end. They are just preliminary signs of the end. Okay, and what are these signs that Jesus goes on to give them? Okay. Next slide. The first sign we have is false Christs and deceivers. So verse 6 says, Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. So in the last days, there will be many people claiming to represent God, claiming to speak for God, claiming to be Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah. And there will also be many people who believe these these, uh, claims and are led astray. 
So that's the first sign. Second sign, next one is wars and political upheaval, and that is in verse seven to eight. Okay, um, on the slide, wars, rumors of wars, things like that. Okay, nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Now, these are a constant feature of our world, isn't it? Po- uh, wars, political things, and from the time of Jesus until now, we see these things happening all the time. They are a sign that Jesus is coming soon. The third sign, third sign, natural disasters. Verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. You know, haven't we just seen earthquake in Indonesia last month? Uh, Jesus could have added, you know, tsunami and a volcano, flood, drought, fire, all these kinds of things. Natural disasters, they show that Jesus is coming soon. Now the next sign of uh, the end times, the end days, is the persecution of Christians, verses 9 and also 11 to 13. And Jesus tells them that it will start with his own disciples. Persecution will come to them, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. The Jews will throw, throw them out of the synagogues and you know, interrogate them in their councils. The Gentiles will get them to stand before kings and rulers. And Jesus says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. He's telling them all these things in advance, not that this will allow them to escape from the persecution, but he's telling them all this so that they can be ready and prepared when they face the persecution. Because, just imagine, the natural tendency of the, of the disciples would be to be scared, right? When, when they have to go and answer, they, I mean, they are, they are only fishermen and tax collectors, but they have to stand before kings and learned and wise people to explain to them about Jesus. They'll be scared. But Jesus promises them. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say when you stand before these people. And the persecution is not just from the government, from the official uh, uh, side of things. It's also unofficial. There is going to be widespread persecution of Christians from families, from communities, and from societies. See, verse 12 says that people are going to hate Christians so much that when somebody becomes a Christian, all the family ties go out the window and they just want to kill you. They don't care if you're my brother, my sister, my father or my mother or my child. They say, I hate Christians and I'll kill you even if you are my father or mother or child or or brother and sister. See, in verse 13, Jesus says that everyone will hate Christians because they hate Christ. That is a sign of the end. And with such a great possibility of being killed, for Christians, isn't it? There will be a great temptation for us and for the disciples to give up their faith and to deny Christ when the crunch comes. But Jesus says, only those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Only those of us who remain faithful to Jesus to the end, even to the point of death, will be saved. That's what he says. Now the fifth sign of the end that Jesus gives is the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Okay, that's in verse 10. So despite all the persecutions and all the upheavals and all the disasters, the gospel will still steadily go out into the world until all the ends of the earth have had a chance to hear the gospel. That is another sign. Now all of these signs, we have to ask ourselves, what are they referring to? Are they talking about, are they going to happen before the temple is destroyed? Or are they going to happen right at the end before Jesus comes again? 
And my answer to you is both, both. See, remember that when the disciples ask about these things, they are actually asking about the whole complex of events, including the temple's destruction and the end and when Jesus comes again. Okay, so just now I showed you a slide. I uh, showed you this slide. That was their original understanding. But Jesus' understanding is more like the next slide, which is that instead of one event, it will be a series of things, okay, a process. So Jesus has come, okay, there'll be wars, disasters, and so on. Then the temple gets destroyed. There'll still be wars, disasters, and so on until just before Jesus comes, a, a huge tribulation we'll read about later, and then Christ returns. So that is more like the kind of thing that Jesus has in mind. And so the signs are going to take place in the disciples' generation, but they are just, they are just a start then. You see, they're going to keep going on until Jesus returns. Now we know that, uh, we know, we've, we've looked at now the, the preliminary signs, okay, up to verse 13, are the preliminary signs, the distant signs of what's going to happen in the future, in the, in the period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Now Jesus goes on to give, in verse 14 to 23, a sign that is nearer to the end. Nearer. Okay, how do we know that it is nearer to the end? Okay, I'll show you on the next uh, page. In verse 24, Jesus says, But in those days, following that distress, now that distress refers to this sign that he's going to give us now in verse, 20, in verse 14 to verse 23. Okay. Following that distress, Jesus is going to come again. And in fact, in Matthew's record of the same verse, he says, immediately after the distress, Jesus is going to come again. Okay. And in verse 29, Jesus also tells his disciples, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near Right at the door. So now we, Jesus is going to give us a sign of something that is going to be near to when he comes. Okay, what is he talking about? What is this sign? Well, let's look at Mark 14 to 18. Mark 13, 14 to 18. Okay. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. And so on. Now, what is the abomination that causes desolation? I mean, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, abomination means something that is really disgusting, that is, God really hates and detests, right? That's what abomination means. And this abomination will lead to desolation, that is, the land being empty and like a wasteland. Okay? So an abomination that leads to judgment on the land. Now, abomination of desolation is an Old Testament term. It was used by the prophet Daniel several times, in fact. So I'll show you on the next slide some places in Daniel where he used these words. And you can see, we won't go through all of these, they're quite complicated in themselves, but basically Daniel predicts that there will be an abomination of desolation set up in the temple, and then the sacrifices and offerings in the temple will stop, and the temple will be, be desecrated or made unholy. Okay, so that is the abomination of desolation. Now, most likely when Daniel spoke of this thing, he was predicting an event uh, that happened before Jesus' time. He was predicting an event in 168 BC 
by this Greek ruler called Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a very cruel guy, and he wanted the Jews to all become like Greeks and worship the Greek god. So what he did is he, he invaded Jerusalem, and he went to the temple and sacrificed a pig on their altar, which is very, very uh, uh, shocking thing for Jews. Okay? And then he put an altar of Zeus right on the temple uh, altar itself and desecrated the temple that way. And he killed many, many Jews and burned all their Bibles and killed everyone who resisted. So Daniel may have been looking forward to this event, but it happened before Jesus' time. So when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, he's talking about something that is yet to come, that's in the future. So now more than 200 years later after Antiochus, Jesus is speaking, and he says that the abomination of desolation is still to come, right? So Jesus says, let the reader of Daniel understand, this thing is in the future. So it seems that the abomination of desolation can refer to more than one thing. It can have more than one fulfillment. You see, in, in the time of Antiochus, it was fulfilled. But something similar to Antiochus will happen again. So I'll show you uh, the next slide. Okay. So original fulfillment, Antiochus, 168 BC. And then the next fulfillment, we'll see later, the Romans will destroy the temple. Very similar event. And perhaps in the future, yet another abomination. Okay, now we haven't got time to go into all that in detail, but maybe we'll touch on it a little bit later. Okay, so this prophecy seems capable of more than one fulfillment. So, is Jesus talking about this abomination? Is Jesus talking about something that will happen in 70 AD, the Romans destroying the temple? Or is he talking about some future final event before he returns? Well, at the very least, it must include the temple's destruction. Okay? He must be talking at least about the, the temple's destruction in 70 AD. Okay, why? Okay, let me show you the next slide. Firstly, that's the question that the disciples asked him, and he's answering their question. Okay, when will the temple be destroyed, and what sign of its destruction do you give to us? Secondly, Jesus gives uh, very specific instructions to the disciples to flee, to run for their lives from Judea, when they see these things starting to happen. Flee to the mountains from Judea. Okay, and that makes sense in that context. The next reason is that Jesus says that this thing will happen in their lifetimes. Okay, he says in verse 30, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And lastly, my next reason is when you read Luke's account of the same thing, Luke makes it very clear for us. Okay, when, when Mark says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, but when you turn to Luke, it says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And we know from history that in AD 66, so that's about uh, less, than, um, less than 40 years after Jesus uh, was saying these words, the Jews rebelled against Rome. And the Romans sent a huge army, a huge, huge army of people, okay, to basically quell the situation, to surround Jerusalem, besiege Jerusalem, and they stopped anyone from leaving the city. And after a while, after you know, one or two years, there was no food left in the city, and people were very desperate. They ate sewerage, they ate, they ate clothes, they ate animal dung, they ate anything they could. When the kids died, they ate the children. Sometimes they even killed their own children to eat their flesh. 
and there were just dead people everywhere on the streets, full of a horrible smell. The whole city was full of unburied corpses. And there was also many false prophets in Jerusalem at that time, telling people, this is the Messiah, that's the Messiah, come with us, you will be safe, come with us, you will be safe, and all then died in the end. And when finally the Romans broke through uh, the walls of Jerusalem in AD 70, they were already so angry with the Jerusalem people because they had been there for four years, right? They just killed people left, right and center, slashed them, don't care who you are, and they kept killing them until their arms were tired of killing. And on, in, in that day, more than one million people died. And they burned all the houses and they burned down the temple of Jerusalem. I'll show you an artist's conception of what happened. Okay, a siege of Jerusalem, okay, where fires everywhere, and the next picture, same kind of thing. Okay? So it was a very, very terrible massacre that happened in AD seventy. And in verse fourteen to eighteen, Jesus warns his disciples how terrible this time would be. And he tells them, Run out of Jerusalem as quickly as you can, as soon as you see the abomination of desolation. And presumably he's talking about the armies the pagan armies with their idols and so on, surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And he says, when you see that, get out of there as quick as you can. Don't even go home and take your passport or whatever. Just get out. Okay? And in fact, the Christians in Jerusalem at that time did do that. Halfway through the siege, there was some political change and uh, the siege stopped for a while and the Christians all ran out of Jerusalem to the hills um, in, near Galilee and they went to stay in a the village there. So there were hardly any Christians left in Jerusalem when it collapsed. And now we move on to the next few verses, verse 19 to 20. Oh, before that. Okay. Okay, hang on, let me just organize myself here. Okay, in the next few verses, in verse 19, Jesus says, Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Now these verses are a bit puzzling, right? Because we are not sure, is he talking still about the Jerusalem thing? Or is he talking about some final future time of great distress? In other words, a great tribulation. Tribulation is just an old-fashioned word for distress. See, Jesus seems here to be talking more, talking about more than the destruction of Jerusalem because he says it will be so bad, it will never happen before and never will happen again. And nobody will survive unless God cuts it short. So, it seems here that Jesus might be talking about some future event. Okay, not just Jerusalem. Yes, Jerusalem is like a pattern of what will happen, but Jesus seems to be talking about some global catastrophe where nobody would survive if God didn't cut it short, especially Christians would not survive. Now let me tell you something about Old Testament prophecy. Okay, now I'll go to this picture. Last year I went to the South Island of New Zealand. Okay, and it's a very beautiful place as you can see. And uh, the beautiful mountain ranges like that. And when you look at the mountains, okay, it seems that they're all next to each other, right? They are just side by side to each other. But when you actually try to drive there, I'll show you the next slide. This is the map, right? You might be standing down there, but to drive to those mountains, you have to go all the way very far. They're all like, not side by side, you realize, okay? They're one, and then another one, and then another one, and so on. So, what's the point? The point is that the same thing often happens in the Old Testament prophecies. 
Okay, it's what we call prophetic foreshortening. That's the technical word. I'll turn to the next one. Okay, that means that uh, a prophecy that talks about different events side by side and doesn't distinguish. Okay, so one example is this Joel prophecy, where Joel says, you know, that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, and we all know if you've read our Bible that that happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts. And then in the next verse, he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke and so on. Okay? And that refers to the coming judgment, right? So Joel puts these two things side by side, but we know from, from, from knowing about the fulfillment that they did not happen side by side. And so this is often something that the prophets do. And Jesus is a prophet too. He's doing something similar. You see, in verse 14 to 18, he's in, and we're back in Mark now, in verse 14 to 18, Jesus starts talking about the horrible destruction that is coming on Jerusalem, right? And then the next few verses, he seems to put it side by side with another similar event near the end of history that will be so terrible that nothing like it has ever happened or will ever happen again. So the earlier event is like a pattern of foreshadowing, like a preview of the future event. And God's earlier judgment on Jerusalem is a preview of God's future judgment on the whole world. And therefore, verse 14 to 23 are not just about Jerusalem, but there's a hint there. It's about more than that. It's about a time of great distress near the end of the age before Jesus comes again. So, we've seen in these verses that Jesus said this is the sign that the end is near. And when you look carefully at this sign, you will see on the next slide, you see that it's actually a sign in two parts. Okay, it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem primarily, but then there is also a reference to a future time, a future time of great distress. Now, that uh, thing about the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation, we won't go into in detail because that is found in other sections of the New Testament that we haven't got time for today. Okay, maybe when we go get to those books in the future. So Jesus has told us about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's told about the tribulation that will come in the end. And now the next section is verses 24 to 27. And here, Jesus talks about the end itself. Okay, so on the next slide, I'll read from verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Jesus is talking about the time of his return. Now what was going to happen at that time? Well, just before he comes, there will be great signs in the skies. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky. And then Jesus will come on the clouds in great power and glory. And these words are actually referring to a prophecy that Daniel wrote. Okay, I'll show you. It's a very familiar one. I'll show you. Daniel chapter 7. You can see the similarities of the, of the words used. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
So Jesus is this Son of Man that Daniel talked about. He is going to come in the clouds. God the Father will give him great power and great glory and he will rule forever. And at that time also, Jesus says, he's going to send his angels to the four corners of the earth, uh, not literally corners of the earth, like, okay, basically around the whole world to gather all his people and bring them to be with him forevermore. So, History as we know it will end with a great climax, with Jesus' return. And Jesus, God's King, has been hidden for so long from this world. People do not realize Jesus is God's King. But one day, it will openly be revealed to all people, and they will see with their own eyes the King. And He's going to come back to save His people, but He's also coming back to judge the living and the dead. So it will be a time of great joy, great rejoicing and for, for Christians, and yet it will be a time of great distress and sorrow and trouble for the unbelievers who do not believe in Him. So Jesus has told us about three things. Okay, Number one, those preliminary signs of the end, the background tribulation that is going to happen all the time from His departure until the time of His return. That's just going to happen throughout in the background. Secondly, Jesus has given us a sign that is nearer to the end, that is a time of great tribulation. And thirdly, Jesus has told us about the end itself. He's going to come again to earth. So He's answered the disciples' questions about the signs. But the second question that the disciples asked was, When? When will these things happen? What's the timing? And that is the next part. Verse 28 to verse 32. Okay, let me read to you from verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now last week we talked a bit about a fig tree, right? Jesus likes using examples from the fig tree. So to this week he uses again the fig tree example, the fig tree has no leaves in winter. Okay? It's only after winter that the leaves start coming out in springtime and by that time you know that summer is near. So when you see leaves on the fig tree, you know that summer is near. So in the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that the end is near. But what are these things? Now we talked about them just now, but I'll go through again some verses. These things, remember that the, the next slide, the disciples ask. Jesus at the beginning, when will these things happen? And Jesus also says, when you see these things happen, you know that it is near. And these things will happen in your generation, Jesus says. Now these things are the signs that Jesus has given to them. Those signs, those widespread chaos, persecutions which will happen and which will climax in the destruction of the temple and a great tribulation. These are the signs that Jesus has given to them. When you see these things happening, Know that it is near. So Jesus says that these things will happen in their very own generation. And you might think, well, then Jesus got it wrong, right? I mean, it's now 2,000 years later, and the temple has been destroyed a long, long time ago, and Jesus has not come yet. So did he get the timing wrong? Did he think that he was going to come back very soon, and then 
he realized that, oh, actually it's wrong. No. This is a bit difficult, but you see, these things that we saw just now, is not just one event. These things is a, a process, right? a series of different events. So these things have happened in the disciples' lifetime. They did start then, but they're not over yet. They're still happening, and they will still happen in the future. See, in every generation, there are going to be false teachers, there are going to be wars and persecutions and natural disasters. But then, you know, these things are still happening now and will still keep happening until Jesus returns. And also, there has been a great tribulation. It has happened in the time of the disciples. The Jerusalem temple was destroyed. Many people died. But then it will happen again in the future. And therefore, from the time of the disciples until today, Jesus' coming is near. Okay, that's a bit strange, right? It's been 2,000 years. But it's a bit like, say, watching a, a series on TV. Okay, let's say you follow this series for 30, 40 weeks, right? And you get to the second last one. Okay, the second last week. And you say to yourself, the end is near. Okay, now the end is near does not necessarily mean that the final episode is going to show next minute, right? You have to wait another week for the final episode. But what you mean is that the last thing in the program is going to happen the next time this series shows. Okay, uh, so in the same way, what is God's next item on His agenda? Everything else has already been done, right? Okay, what's God's plan for salvation? To send Jesus to die, that's done. He will rise from the dead, that's done. He will ascend to heaven, that's done. What's the final step? He will come again to earth and be king forever. So we are in the final chapter of God's plan. So it is near, the only thing left in God's program is the coming, the return of Jesus. And therefore, it is near not necessarily in terms of how many years, but it is near because it's the very next thing to happen in God's plan. So Jesus says the end is near, and yet he doesn't tell us when. Notice in verse, 20, in verse 32, it says, About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but only the Father. So Jesus tells us when these things are going to happen. He says, in your very generation they will happen. Okay, and we see them happening. But about that day, he doesn't tell us. He says, nobody knows. He, he himself does not know when he's going to come again. Only the Father knows. And yet, at the same time, these things that are happening now is a sign that that day is near. So there's a bit of a tension, right? On the one hand, we don't know when it is going to happen. On the other hand, when we see these things happening, we know that it is near. So the signs that Jesus gives to us are not signs that tell us when he's going to come back again, but it is to tell us that he's going to come back again. These signs tell us that Jesus is coming back. In other words, the signs are not given for us to speculate the timing of Jesus' return. The signs are given for us to guarantee to us that Jesus is definitely coming back. When we see these things happening, we know Jesus is returning because He said these things will happen and they are happening. So now we've talked about the signs of the end and we've worked out that Jesus is coming back in the indefinite future at some time. We don't know exactly when. The next question is, so what? You know, why, why bother to know all this then? What's so important for us to know all this stuff? What does it have to do with us? Okay, let's read from verse 33 to the end of the chapter. Be on guard. Be alert. 
You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So the application point, the take-home message for all of us today from this chapter is, be on guard, be alert and watch. Now if you told your mate, I'm going out of the house and wash the dishes and cook dinner and clean the toilet before I come back. Okay? And when you come back, okay, dishes are still in the sink, toilet is filthy, no dinner to eat. What's your response to that? Not very happy, right? Okay. Jesus is the master. He's going out and he told his servants, put the household in order and you watchmen, stay at the door and watch. Okay. I'm coming back at some late hour. Now those times that are listed are all times in the night time. Okay? There are times when you don't expect somebody to come and you, it's very, very hard to stay awake, right? Okay? But Jesus says, stay awake and wait for me to come back. It's going to be some unearthly hour. But we have to stay awake, right? Even though it's so hard to stay awake because that's precisely when he's going to come back at the most unexpected time. So Jesus is coming back at some unexpected time and when you read Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which is the parallel passage, it's much longer and it tells us a lot of parables about the, the ten virgins and so on, about, when, about the fact that Jesus is coming back at some unexpected hour and people will be caught off guard. You see, people will be going on about life as usual and then Jesus will suddenly return. So in this, in this passage, we know that yes, we are living in the last days and there are signs happening right before our eyes that Jesus is coming back. Okay, All the upheavals and the disasters and persecutions we see. And yet at the same time, it is also a time of life as usual. See, people will still be engrossed in buying their condos. People will still be engrossed in changing their jobs. They'll still be engrossed in going to casino and eating and drinking and you know getting married and so on. When Jesus will come, so the take-home message is, don't miss the signs of the end, but be on your guard. Don't think that it's not yet time for Jesus to come. I still have a chance. He could be here anytime, so be ready. Now what does it mean for us to be on our guard and stay awake and keep watch? Well, firstly, do not be foolish. The Bible says that there are many who will, many people who will laugh and scoff at the idea that Jesus is coming back. What? You, you mean to tell me that Jesus is going to come in the sky, on the clouds? You know, come on, I mean, did you live 2,000 years ago? Are you in the 21st century now? Okay, and that's uh, a passage in Second Peter. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. What a stupid idea to believe, they will say. Now you may not be a Christian, and you may think, this is all nonsense. God is, but God is saying to us, don't be a scoffer. Don't be a scoffer. Because Jesus is coming again. And he has given you all the signs to confirm it. And these signs have happened and they are still happening and they will yet to, are yet to happen. 
And in verse 22, Jesus told us, I have told you all these things ahead of time. I've prepared you for it. I've told you already. So know that Jesus is coming again and understand and get ready for his return by trusting in him as your saviour. Because if you don't trust in him as saviour, when he comes it will be too late and by that time he's coming not to be your saviour but to be your judge. And if you are a Christian, don't be foolish but be wise when you see the things happening around in our world today. You know, recognize the signs that you see. So when you see false teachers and false doctrines and deceivers, and when you see wars and chaos in our world, and when you see the natural disasters happening around us, when you see Christians persecuted around the world and killed, and when you see the gospel going forth to all the countries, you know that Jesus said all these things will happen. And you understand that all of these are signs that Jesus is coming soon. And see that Jerusalem has already fallen just as Jesus predicted. And now that we are waiting for the final chapter for Jesus to come back. Now the next application point is don't be fooled. See there will be many false Christs, false messiahs, false teachers, false prophets. And in fact, in verse 22 it says some of these people will be so real, they are so believable that even the elect might be deceived if possible. See they're going to do signs and wonders and all kinds of things to deceive Christians. So don't believe everything you see, or you hear, or you read, but judge by God's word. Now how can we judge things by God's word if we don't know what's in God's word, right? So make an effort to study, to read God's word in depth so that you can judge for yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit what is true and what is false. And don't believe if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, you know what? Jesus is coming back uh, such and such a time. Okay? Because Jesus coming back will not be hidden. Everybody will be able to see him coming back. You don't have to be given a secret message. So, don't be deceived. And next, don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. Now, two things not to be fearful about. First, is world events. Don't be fearful when you see the wars, the terrorists, the political danger, the economic instability, global warming, H1N1, things like that. Jesus says in verse 7, these things must happen. Do not be alarmed. So we have all grown up, at least some of us, the younger ones maybe, have grown up in a generation of stability and peace. And we think that our experience is the norm, it's normal to always have peace and stability. But actually, if you look at world history, stability and peace are more like the exception rather than the norm, isn't it? The normal state of affairs in our world is chaos and uncertainty and change. So don't be alarmed when you see these things, but trust in Jesus. And the second thing that we shouldn't be scared of is persecution. Now what Jesus told us about persecution is quite scary, right? We could lose our lives for him. And nobody wants to be persecuted. Nobody wants to die for their faith. Yet, Jesus says that believers should expect persecution. In verse 13, he says, Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, no matter what hardships happen to us as Christians, Jesus expects us to not to deny him and not to be ashamed of him. Even if somebody puts a gun to your head, God forbid. Yet, 
even the threat of death should not turn us away from God. And then we will be saved, it says. Next point is don't be fanatical. I mentioned earlier that there are some people who love talking about nothing else except speculating about the end times and all the details of the future and so on. And they give the area of end time prophecy a bad name. right? But Jesus says it's important to think about his return. But it's not important for you to know the details. And therefore, he doesn't give us the details. So just like in Old Testament prophecy, it can often be hard to tell exactly when this thing is going to be fulfilled. Until it has been fulfilled. Then when you look back, you say, oh yeah, it was fulfilled exactly as said. You see, and that's the same that will happen to us. So be careful when you hear this theory or that theory about what's going to happen. Okay, because... We do not know the details. And if you hear that people say, oh, Jesus is coming back in 2012 or, or whatever date, right? Just tell yourself it's rubbish. You know it's rubbish because Jesus says even he doesn't know when he's coming back. How would anyone else know, right? Only the Father knows. So we don't need to know the details, but what we need to do is to be on our guard. And lastly, we need to be faithful. And being faithful means living expectantly and living responsibly before Jesus returns. See, the time is short. Jesus is coming back soon. And the fact that Jesus is coming back must determine everything in our lives. What job we take, what we buy with our money, what we do with our time, what, who we marry, how we treat people. All these things must be determined by the fact that Jesus is around the corner, about to come. See, we can't, be afford to, we can't afford to be distracted by this world, by all the pleasures of our world, by all the enjoyment that we want. But we must live for God. We must live to work for Him and to please Him. And that means that we must live lives of love and lives of holiness and humility and service. And that also means that, it doesn't mean that all of you have to just go out there and be missionaries, but it means that wherever you are now in your life, and whatever job you have, whatever situation you are in, look for opportunities to do good and to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Now, if you do that, you may face opposition from unbelievers. Even if you are the most tactful, you know, the most loving and the most sensitive person and you share the gospel, you could still face unpopularity and opposition. And if that happens to you, so be it. Accept it as part of the deal. Right? Because if you try to run away and try to be the most popular guy around and never to you know, say anything that will offend anyone, then we are actually ashamed. Ashamed of Jesus and His Gospel. So let us be bold and speak the Gospel. Yes, lovingly and tactfully and graciously, but we still need to speak it. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? It's not just about knowing a fact and getting on with life as usual, but the fact that Jesus is coming back must determine how we live today and every day until He returns. So be on your guard and stay awake. Keep watch. So let's pray and ask God for the strength to do all this because the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your great plan of salvation that you accomplish in the death and the resurrection and ascension of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We know that only one thing remains, and that is for Jesus to return, to gather us to you and to judge the world. We know that this will certainly happen because everything else that you said that you would do has already been done. And so help us as we wait for his coming to trust in him and in his dependable words. Because heaven and earth will pass away, but his words are true and will never pass away. So strengthen us to endure whatever opposition or hardship or persecution that we might face for being followers of Christ and help us to remain faithful until the end. And help us not to live for ourselves, for our comfort or pleasure, but to live for you, to please you and to do your work on earth and so that we might be ready for our Master's return and we may hear those priceless words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your Master's happiness. We ask this for your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.